Good morning, everyone. It's nice to be back here in Vancouver. Uh, our, if you don't know, our sale uh, service team just went last. I just actually just came back last Friday, and we had a really great experience. And you'll get to hear about it more uh, when we have our sale Sunday uh, on September 10th. And it's also really nice to see that there's a lot of familiar faces that uh, have been away uh, out of town and back in their, uh, from their vacations to worship with us this morning. So uh, today is uh, kind of like a follow-up to uh, the message that I shared from two weeks ago. And, uh, and for those who weren't here, it was on uh, the book of Jonah, on uh, his encounter in the sea, in the storm with the sailors. And so today we fast forward uh, past the famous story about the fish and past his um, preaching to the Ninevites in Nineveh. And we are at the very last chapter of Jonah where we have this uh, final climatic encounter between Jonah and God. And as I was studying this passage and reflecting on what was going on and reflecting on my own experience at Stay Out and even just catching up on the world news as to what's happening recently around the world. And as I looked at that, uh, there's a word that has been floating around uh, on the internet and the word is um, the word triggered. And and apparently uh, the world today has been going through a lot of conflicts not just physical conflicts and war, but a lot of social conflicts about how people ought to be placed in the society and how they're treated. And uh, for those who have been following the news, you know that, especially down at uh, Virginia, there was a protest going on uh, and a lot of counter-protests about uh, the issues of uh, race and ethnicity. And even even in our own backyard in Vancouver, there was a a rally that was happening yesterday at the city hall uh, regarding the same issues. And so, what exactly is this word triggered? And I did the thing that every responsible scholar would do, and I looked at a reliable source on the internet. And so I went to Urban Dictionary to find the definition of what trigger means. And so. It says that triggered is when someone gets offended or gets their feelings hurt. Often used and mentioned to describe, uh, to describe feminists or people with strong victimization. And the word is used through social media really often. And so, in some sense, this is something that goes on a lot. And as we are in this society where uh, online communication is the primary mode of communication nowadays, we, we tend to get a little carried away as to what we say, how we present ourselves, and what are the word choices we use. And as a result, we might say some things without really thinking, thinking it through as to why we say what we say. And then it ends up triggering the people that actually saw or received the message. And as a result, in um, today's passage, you realize that what God said and what God did ended up 
really triggering Jonah. And throughout the whole book especially, the, the recurring question that got asked Jonah was, what right do you have to be angry? What right do you have to be angry about him being compassionate and gracious to these Ninevites? And as you dig deeper in this uh, book of the Bible, you realize a lot of the root issues that are going on in Jonah had to do with his, um, his own narcissistic views. And he often just focused on his own needs and his own convictions and his own sense of righteousness to a way where he would disregard the feelings and the, and the well-being of those around him. And in some sense, in the psychological realm, we, we would sometimes label this kind of personality as narcissism or narcissistic behavior because they're really self-centered and they revolve everything around themselves and themselves only. And this is especially the same case when you look at social media nowadays when the hyper-individualism forces us to always put the attention at ourselves. And this is really evident when you look at something like Facebook when people get really preoccupied about presenting their own thoughts. Whereas back then, back in the day, all people do would be writing in their own diary, ranting to themselves and and maybe to God in their prayers. But nowadays, they have to make a post on the wall to talk about their own lives. And, and it's not just that. They're expecting people to comment on their post and what, to resonate with their own feelings, to make them feel better. And even more, they're not happy with that. They have to have people liking the post and, and liking the comments to the post. And in some scientific studies, they actually said the thrill of having a lot of people liking your posts and your comments and your whatever you share is for some people equivalent to, to um, taking drugs or doing some high-risk-seeking behavior. So their dopamine, dopamine levels actually rise up when they see people liking their posts or sharing their posts. And in the same way, I was thinking maybe if back in the day there was Facebook, Jonah would probably do the same thing where he would always be making posts about what he's going through and hoping people would say they agree with what he was sharing. And that whole famous prayer while he came out of the fish, he would probably share it on Facebook, hoping for people would like it and resonate with him and say, oh, this is great. Yeah, God is great. But then he's, he doesn't really care if people thinking God is great, but that he is right that God is great. And, and probably when he was preaching at Nineveh, he would be all, all, all hyped up about posting something to share that he checked in at Nineveh and asking recommendations of where, where to go to preach his condemnation sermon and probably sharing that, oh, these people deserve to, to be judged and all that. And so when we get to chapter 4, he would be so annoyed and triggered and he would probably rant on it on Facebook as well. But honestly, he shared especially in, in the encounter 
And as we look at the passage this morning, there was a lot of hatred going on in Jonah's heart and in his, in his process of thinking. And so in chapter 4, chapter four it says that, Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah has so much hatred towards this group of people that he'd rather die than to see them being shown grace by God. And, and it's really hard to imagine, like, in our own lives, is there something so great that you would rather die to see it, to, to see people being shown favor to them? And so, so I, I kept thinking about if there are any instances in my own lives where that happened. And, and the closest thing I can imagine is when I was, um, when, when I was in high school back in the day when I was doing social studies. And, and for those who took social studies, you know that um, we do a lot of debates um, in the class. And so one time we had to do this debate, and I still remember it so clearly. It was on uh, a topic uh, it was social 10 on, on the topic of Louis Riel and, and the Métis. And so there was a debate going on and we're supposed to write uh, a debate arguing that it was completely justified for Canadians to go and fight them and take over um, their rebellion. And so I wrote this really, really long uh, speech and prepped it really well, but at the end I didn't really like it. And so I was like, no, I'm not going to use it. I'll use something else. Then my partner, who hasn't figured out what he was going to do, was asking, oh, what did you write? And I was like, I wrote this, and I don't really like it. Why don't, why don't you take it? And he's like, sure. And then he ended up taking that script. And then I, we did that debate, and at the end, he got a better mark than I did. With my speech, when I wrote something else, it was actually a lower grade. And I got really, really choked. I was like, what? No way. Like, he didn't do anything. How come he deserved a better mark than I do? And, and, and and I wasn't having enough hate, hatred that I'd rather die to see, see him get a better mark, but, but I was just really choked. And I, I can understand, like, this was even greater for what Jonah was experiencing. And so, as you look into the passage uh, later on, it talked about Jonah was sitting and camping himself on a hill, looking over Nineveh. And this probably happened... Right, when, um, right in the same time as he was having this dialogue with God. So it's not, it's not a sequential order, but it was probably an uh, introduction, as, an explanation as to what was going on at that time when he was overseeing the hill and, and there was a vivid description of God interacting with Jonah, not just in words, but with the placing of a plant to give him shade and then eventually taking it away uh, by putting worms on there and eating away that plant. And in some way, um, this is a way of God trying to illustrate a point to Jonah as to why he 
he was doing what he did to show favor to these Ninevites. And the whole struggle between God and Jonah was on the topic of mercy and grace. For Jonah, he would expect that God is supposed to be merciful, with a huge disclaimer once again, that God's mercy is only specific to a chosen people group only. And in this case, it would be the Israelites who are supposedly the chosen and favored people of God. And so, if there are people who are God's enemies and who are outside the chosen group, God is not entitled to give mercy. The people are not entitled to receive God's mercy. And that if they do something that are against God's people, they should be judged and they should be receiving calamity and destruction. And so, what Jonah is suffering from is kind of like a symptom of what uh, a discipleship writer, James Brian Smith, was describing as how you see God influences how you see the world. How you see God influences how you see the world. And if you have a very narrow image and, and understanding of who God is, you will end up having a very narrow understanding of what and how the world ought to be. For instance, if you think God is a very vengeful God rather than being a compassionate God, then whatever something bad that happens, people should be punished. It's kind of like the concept of karma, where if you do something good, you always should receive something good in return. Whereas if something is uh, inflicted on others, then you shall also receive an equal amount of curse being inflicted back on you. And so, and so for Jonah, this is his sense of how justice is seen in this world. But of course, to God's perspective, this is not what justice is for, for who God is ought to be. And an illustration of how that kind of mindset would, would shackle and constrain us. It reminds me of um, one time when I was back in Hong Kong. And, and when you're back in Hong Kong, you know the first, thing, the first things that you would do would, go, would be going to the street markets where you'd go and buy some snacks on the street. And so as any tourist would do, I would be going to... Um, well, these major districts and go line up for snacks. So I was trying to line up for fish balls. And as I was lining up, I, I overheard um, a conflict that was happening at the front of the line. So there was this guy who was complaining at the store, um, the, the store owner who was, who was uh, selling curry fish balls. And as any responsible Hong Kong person would do, I, I actually stopped lining up. I went up to the group and I pulled my camera to, t- to take a video as to what was going on so that I would get the best angle of the story to share somewhere. And so as I was doing that, 
I overheard the conflict. And so what actually happened was the guy was complaining that the other guy who was lining up behind him got more fish balls in his skewer than he did. He was complaining that, why is it that this guy got seven fish balls when I only get six and I paid the exact same price of one dollar Canadian? Why am I getting whipped up? And so the store owner was like, okay, okay, sorry, sorry. Uh, he was meant to only get six, but somehow I accidentally gave him an extra. And so how about I just give you an extra fishbowl and let it, let it sit like right there. But the guy's like, no, that's not fair. That's not how it should be. You're supposed to take that extra fishbowl away from him so that everybody only gets six fishbowls. And this is how you're supposed to be fair. And then everyone is like scratching their head. It's like, what? But the owner is like, no, no, no. Like, I'll give you an extra fishbowl. Like, what's wrong with that? You get more than what you asked for. And the guy's like, no, that's not fair. That's not how things work in this world. If they, they don't deserve it, they don't deserve it. And so as I was thinking back, this is kind of what Jonah was thinking, that when things ought to be just, everyone should be punished equally. But he does not think of it the other way around, where when God is being righteous, he is also extending grace, that we always get more than what we deserve that we always get more than we ever ask for in his abundance of grace. And so in chapter 1, during that struggle, Jonah kind of started to learn this idea that God's righteousness includes grace. But he still put a caveat to it, that this grace is only limited to the Israelites, that other people shouldn't be receiving this extra grace. And so in chapter 4, when he had that encounter with God, God was trying to also further his point that God's grace is impartial. That he is loving and gracious to all of humanity, to all who seek and yearn for his grace and who repent and ask for forgiveness. And so Jonah is really struggling and he does not get it until the very end of the story. But at the same time, God's love and faithfulness, the word has it that we talked about last week, it's not complete if you don't include in the word racham, which means uh, mercy and compassion. And the irony in this whole passage, as the author was trying to illustrate, is that Jonah, at the beginning of his conflict, specifically mentioned that God is both a Hezek and a Rakem God. He's both compassionate and he's merciful and he's faithful. Yet, he has this really narrow mindset that mercy is not uh, given out to people beyond his own people group. His own narcissistic view constrained him to view that it should be only his own well-being and what he thinks is right, that this grace should extend to that group of people and himself. And 
And in the same time, mercy, the word mercy, it is a really vivid word in the Hebrew language. It means the idea of being in the womb, of uh, like a, a womb of the mother, where when you suffer, the mother equally suffers with the baby. And so to extend mercy and compassion, the one extending this compassion is also suffering with those who are suffering at the moment. But Jonah has this really high view of God, that as God who is pure and up above, he should not be able to experience any sense of suffering when he shows compassion. That this God who is pure and infinite cannot experience pain the way we experience pain. So he's kind of half right in that sense, but in the same time, God experienced pain as he shows compassion, but he used a different way to experience and show this pain. But to take a step back, when you look at what Jonah was suffering, was was God trolling Jonah? Was God trying to make fun of Jonah by saying, here it is, a plant, I'll give you some shade, but, but joke's on you, like, I'm actually going to take it away. And then you're going to be scorching, burned, and then you're going to complain. So, of course, God doesn't do things just because he feels like it. He does it because he has a purpose in his own um, agenda. And in this instance, God is trying to illustrate the kind of hypocrisy that Jonah has in his understanding of grace and compassion. Jonah, throughout his whole ministry up to this point, was preaching grace to himself, asking grace for himself. Yet he preaches also destruction to the Ninevites. And he preaches, um, he, he preaches apathy towards the sailors, that he doesn't really care about the sailors and only cares about himself when he goes through uh, the brink of destruction. And in the same time, Jonah remains stubborn. The fact that he refuses to, to be open to what God is trying to illustrate. And, and in the same time, he asks for his own forgiveness for himself and his people. But when he goes through this experience himself, he was mourning for this plant which got destroyed. And, and was complaining that this worm was eating away the scorched plant that was giving him shade. And in this illustration then, God was trying to tell him that even Jonah, you, you have feelings and compassion towards this plant that should not be destroyed. And why then do you not show compassion and mercy to the Ninevites that you have not done anything to, to, to show, to to deserve vengeance and hatred, and you did not ask for their, their grace and their compassion to be received from God. And so, as what James Bryan Smith also mentioned later on in his book, God loves us not because we're lovable, but because he himself is loved. 
this is who he is. And for, for God in Jonah's encounter, he's trying to demonstrate that this is who God is, not just to the Israelites, but to the entire creation. That he cannot help but to extend love and grace and mercy to those who seek it. And so, Jonah, from what we understand in the book of Kings, probably goes through some sort of transformation in his life that later on, in his later years, when he goes into his prophetic ministry, he actually became a much more responsible prophet, answering God's call and preaching justice to the world around the region. And maybe this is a way of looking at how we address narcissism. God is telling us that to walk away from narcissism is not about just being selfless. Being selfless is not the answer, as you're only still focusing on addressing your own needs and your own concerns and your own uh, ailments mentally. But whether a way to respond to narcissism would be something kind of like an African uh, concept that we don't have an actual English word to describe. And this word is called the word Ubuntu. And it's really hard to translate this word exactly to English. But um, the simplest and best definition I can find is that Ubuntu means I am because we are. I am because we are. Our existence is, is um, defined by our relationship with one another. And so, by moving away from seeing only ourselves and our own needs, we see the needs of others. And in some way, this kind of encompasses the whole commandment that Jesus taught us, to love others as we love ourselves. To see that we are all persons in relations, that as we love others, we know what it means to love ourselves. And in the same way, to have that relation with the Trinity, we also learn to love truly who we are and who we're created to be. So, what God is trying to say is, what right do you have to be angry? What right do you have to be angry? Not just to Jonah, but to us. There are things in this world, perhaps, that you feel you have a strong sense of anger towards. That some people should be beyond redemption. That if God were to do something, they, they, sh they really should just be, be annihilated. But who are we to extend that anger to? Who are we to extend that anger to? God's grace is impartial. But more importantly, God's grace is scandalous. Can you imagine how scandalous 
this grace of God is, that this God who has every right in his own sense of being to be angry at humanity, that no one should deserve to be saved in the first place, that as someone who is Chinese, who, who values efficiency and productivity, he probably is easier to just wipe out the whole world and just start from scratch and, and take out all these issues that that human being has and be all subservient and obedient. And, and there wouldn't be any problem. And he'll be happy and everyone would be happy. But he chose to go through the hard road, the painful path to give free will to humanity so that they can choose to love God willingly rather than being forced to. And in the same time, when humanity do choose to fall away, he remains to be hasad in his faithfulness to humanity and be rakam, to be merciful and compassionate. No matter how many times humanity choose to disobey God, he would be there to wait for us to choose to come back to him, to follow him once again. And he would just drown us in his mercy and grace. But most importantly, the greatest scandal of all is he who is right to be angry and judged chose to take on all that sin and judgment upon himself to come pure as a lamb, as the sacrificial lamb to die for us so that through that murder, that painful death on the cross, that all the wrong that is accused of us would be made anew, that all that sin we have would be washed away so that we may know him and that we will have a soul that can live in eternity in this world and the world to come. So, who God is and how we see him influences how we see this world around us. How are we going to go out into our world from today onward? How do we see who God is? If God is this gracious and compassionate and abundant God, and we believe truly that this is who he is, how can we go and lift that out and as we engage the world outside? How do we go and show mercy and compassion even to those who oppress against us, who show uh, oppression and, and, and violence to the world around us. How can we live out a justice that is not based on vengeance, but a justice that is built on love and compassion? How do we do that in our own families, in our encounters with families and for those who are uh, born in a, in a broken family, that, that there is anger towards your, your parents or towards those who have inflicted pain on you? How do you show this scandalous grace that God has first shown and lavished you with? Or in your own workplace, or for people that have wronged you, that have persecuted you, that have judged or mocked you, how do you continue to show the scandalous grace. Let us all pray together. Father God, we thank you.
not because of anything that you have done, but because you first are the embodiment of love and grace and mercy. We come in, uh, we come, come in here asking for forgiveness. That many times we feel angry towards your creation, when in the very end that you, the one, should be angry towards us because of our own transgression against you. But Lord, we thank you because you are the one who continues to show mercy and compassion towards us. And as we continue to live out our own lives in our own different circles, may you empower us to live out that mercy. May you uh, compel us to be compassionate. And may you convict us to continue to show faithfulness towards you from today until the end of time. We thank you for your love. And we pray all these in your son's most precious name.